I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up on the current events. And then we've got two special interviews scheduled. We sat down with our good friend, Dr. Amber Schmidtke, to talk about the most recent COVID cases and the Delta variant. And then later on the pod, we sat down with the brand new president and CEO of Democracy Forward, Sky Perryman. Both conversations are really, really good, so stay tuned for both of them. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of the Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode, we're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, I thought we were out of this. What is going on? Yeah, you know, we were chatting right before we turned the mics on that people keep saying new normal, and I think this is just normal. Now, I had stopped buying masks because I thought, surely we have enough to cover us till the end of this thing, and I have started buying masks again. You know, I got a little bit of a hint of it last week uh, when I was in uh, the nation's capital. Uh, of course, here in the, the in Oklahoma, the, the heart of the country, a lot of people have just abandoned masks altogether, and, and I had too. I, I readily admit that. I started getting really relaxed, going into grocery stores, restaurants, unmasked, post office. Uh, still was a little hesitant not to wear a mask around children just because they're unvaccinated, but uh, I had grown accustomed to not wearing a mask. Well, I head over to the nation's capital last week, and I was really surprised to discover that in Washington, D.C., um, private businesses are still requiring masks, whether you go into a restaurant or whether you go into an office building, uh, obviously public trans and things like that. But everywhere, people were wearing masks still. And so I got a little bit of a hint of that in the nation's capital. And then, of course, this week, just the explosion of the Delta variant and the infection rate going up in all 50 states once again. And we're sitting here in the middle of July. And I'm just really worried about it. I mean, just really worried about it. Deaths are, deaths are starting to escalate again. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just very fearful, not necessarily for, you know, my own life or the life of my, uh, of my family, because I've got older kids who are vaccinated. But, you know, in your situation, you, you've got little ones who are not eligible for the vaccine right now. And they're heading back to school in about a month. They are. And, you know, we keep hearing these statistics about how in-person learning is better. It's better for their development, for their emotional health, for their cognitive, all those things. Um, But at the same time, there are 29 kids and just in our state, which hasn't even been impacted as much by the Delta variant, who are in the hospital right now. 29 kids in the hospital. 
And that is nerve-wracking to me. The American Academy of Pediatrics has come out and said anyone two years of age and older, if you're in school, should be masked. And on the same day, I got an email from Norman Public Schools saying masks will not be required. They will not be encouraged. They've opened back up for visitors to come in. I mean, it's basically businesses, they're going to eat in the cafeteria again. So these mass spreader events every single day that I send my kid to school. Yeah, and it's just what scares me, and we're not here yet, and, and thank God we're not here yet, but we are seeing the infection rate as far as ages are concerned trending downward. Talked to one of our friends uh, over in Little Rock, Arkansas, Baylor uh, Med, and they were telling me the other day that they now have 40 individuals under the age of 40 in the ICU. Yeah, and what we've learned from COVID is once you hit the ICU, a lot of times you don't come back from that. And maybe these folks will because they're younger. Like right. maybe the statistics of coming out of the ICU will be better. But you're right. I mean, COVID sort of did its work the first wave, first round through, and it killed off a lot of people. And I think that's something that's getting sort of lost um, in the narrative right now. People are, are talking a lot about, um, you know, that there are all these job openings and all these things happening. And I'm like, have we forgotten how many people in our country died in the past year? Like. It's just numbers. Like, of right. course there's going to be vacancies. And what is alarming to me, and we're going to get into this with our discussion uh, with Dr. Schmidtke, but just the way viruses themselves, I mean, doesn't, doesn't matter if it's COVID or not, but just viruses, how the reasons that they mutate, how they progress from host to host, and when all of a sudden the, the virus finds that Hosts are running out. Well, it has to. It, it's a living organism, so it's trying to survive. So it evolves, it mutates to make certain that it can continue to survive, and that's why it's so uh, so rapidly spreading now. And it's it, it's really frightening. Again, my fear: we're not there yet. Please hear me say that we're not here yet. But would this thing ever mutate to the point where it starts attacking children and causing problems with children who seem to be very resilient to the virus now? But you know, if the thing needs a host, it, thing, it needs a host. Yeah, and I think, you know, the silver lining to all this is that we are so close to having the vaccine for kids. They're saying maybe mid-November, um, earlier winter, if, you know, at the latest, they're thinking we're going to be able to get shots in arms of kiddos. And so that is good news. but. This, yeah, you're right. This virus has been pretty aggressive, and it's been really good at changing and making its own variants. Yeah. And I know we've, you know, in our writings, uh, on our podcasts in the past, you know, we, we've poked fun at uh, those individuals who have been slow to get the virus or to get the uh, slow to get the uh, the vaccine. Um, here's where I am on this: the vaccine works. For those who are dying of COVID-19, 99.5% of them are unvaccinated. The vaccine works. I'm pleading with people who are still unvaccinated, please go get vaccinated. Your life depends upon it and the lives of your loved ones depend on it. It's that simple. Just please, please do it. I know you've got some hesitancy, but the proof is in the pudding, and the proof is the vaccine works. Mitch, you and I have had the vaccine. 
we're not magnetized to our fridge. <laughs> um, I can't, I don't have any additional ESP than I believe I had before. Um, I haven't like sprouted any extra limbs. I'm, you know, nothing strange has happened to me other than a little fatigue after the second dose. So our families have had it, our children, some of our children have had it. And so talk to someone that you trust, talk to your doctor, talk to a medical professional who knows your medical history and do as they advise. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, in my article this week, I was writing about it and, you know, Paul, when he's talking about sin entering in the world, that death followed. And I use that as an analogy to say, you know, we're better than this. I understand people's concerns. I understand their hesitancy. I don't get it personally, but I understand theirs. When we choose not to perpetuate healing and hope into the world, death often follows. And that's what we're seeing today. And we are a people of good faith. We're a people that are interested in the common good. So we need to set our petty differences aside and step up and make certain that this world is a safer place to live in and a healthier place to live in. So with that, I'll get off uh, my soapbox and uh, step away from the pulpit. And if you all would get vaxxed, we could keep them off that soapbox, folks. Come on. Do it for us. Do it for me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll step, off, step away, step off, uh, because our next guest, uh, friend of the pod, she's just fantastic. She's full of uh, knowledge and wisdom, and you'll just find her to be a delight. Uh, Autumn and I sat down with Dr. Amber Schmidtke. Uh, we're really excited to bring this interview to you. So stay tuned. I'm Jenna. I'm Ashley. And we are Reverends. Revs on the road. Hop in the car with us and come along for the ride. As we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. We travel the country from the comfort of our place in Dallas for now and catch up with beautiful people doing God's work, advocating for disability rights, healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse, promoting mental health and the power of community, integrating spirituality and art, working for racial justice, and so much more. We've got red light rants, pit stops, and detours. Faith is a journey, and we're on it. So ride along with us, the Revs, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we've got a very special guest with us who is no stranger to the pod, Dr. Amber Schmitke. Dr. Schmitke is the new Division Chair of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of St. Mary, and she has been a great contributor to Good Faith Media over this pandemic time. And so I'm going to welcome you, Dr. Schmitke, to Good Faith Weekly, but I have to admit, I'm not that excited to <laughs> see you again. No offense whatsoever. <laughs> hey, I understand it. I, more than anybody, want this pandemic to be over, I think. So I understand and uh, 
I'm sorry that we're meeting under these circumstances, but I always appreciate the chance to talk to you guys. Well, first of all, congratulations uh, on the new gig. That's exciting. Tell us a little bit about uh, your new position. Yeah, so I'm the chair of the Division of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at um, the University of St. Mary. It's a small Catholic liberal arts school. Um, And I am excited because, you know, over the course of the pandemic, I did a lot of science communication. Um, But what I kept running into, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this too, is we just have a lot of folks that are, um, they really struggle with science literacy. And so I felt like as a communicator, maybe the way that I help most at this point in time is by going back to school (laughs) and by um, making sure that the next generation of young adults um, has a better sense of familiarity with science and really offer whatever I can in that arena. So that's why I'm here. Enter exhibit A, the Delta variant. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, Mitch welcomed our listeners back to Good Faith Weekly, but we're actually considering changing the name to COVID. Yeah, we're still talking about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm writing show notes and like COVID is the buzzword. Like we, we've said COVID more than Jesus on this podcast. <laughs> organization that's a problem um so we you know we were making some positive strides combating this disease vaccines were going in arms we have you know three of them kind of running that people can choose from um but now we're starting to see these spikes uh, specifically across the southern swath of our country so how did we get here well so here's the thing about how viruses behave um every time they infect a new person they have to make copies of themselves And when they do that process, there's the opportunity for mutations to occur. Um, So really, the way we can prevent variants from developing is by limiting transmission. If the virus doesn't have as many chances to replicate and mutate, then we don't run into these things. Now, most of these mutations are not helpful to the virus um, because viruses are lean and mean. They can only carry enough genetic material to do the very basic functions of of their um of their disease process thank goodness um, right yeah they don't have time for junk <laughs> dna we carry a lot of junk dna in yeah. our genomes um and so if there's a mutation it's more likely that it's going to hurt something rather than help um, but on occasion you will get these ones that confer some sort of an advantage and in this case it's really transmissible um you know it i saw a preprint come out not too long ago that estimated that the viral load in people infected with Delta is about a thousand fold higher than what we saw with previous variants of the virus. And so what that means is people are shedding more virus and they're shedding it earlier in their disease process before they display symptoms. And so that's really dangerous because, you know, a person doesn't know they're sick um, and they go out about doing their normal daily thing and they're exposing people without realizing it. Um, And so it's just a good reminder to tell people that you can love someone very much and accidentally give them a deadly virus. Um, This is not an issue of how much you care about people. It is it is simply something you have very little control over, except to do those public health recommendations that we've been recommending this whole time. So. So, Dr. Schmicke, obviously, uh, Delta, I think, is the prominent uh, strand of COVID right now that uh, we're facing. Um, how is the Delta variant different from COVID, the, the, the regular COVID uh, virus? Yeah, so the big thing is that it is more transmissible. Um, and so where before, you know, uh, uh, one of the earlier variants or the original um, strain of uh, COVID-19 would go on, a person would go on to infect two people. This one is about four times worse. So it's estimated that 
a person who's sick could go on to infect as many as eight people. Um, and so it just, it, what it means is that things mushroom out of control very fast. Um, it, there is no indication really that this variant is more dangerous in the sense that it causes a more intense disease, um, but it's shots on goal, right? So if you're infecting more people, you are gonna be sending more people to the hospital um, simply because there's more opportunity for the virus to find those vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. So let me uh, ask you, kind of following that line of questioning, because we've talked before and, you know, once this virus, you know, it, it's running out of host, it's always trying, it needs a host to survive. And so, like you said, when it replicates, then it mutates. Here is my great fear, Dr. Schmicke. It's going to attack always the unvaccinated people. The largest unvaccinated population we have now are children. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing this trend of younger kids and younger people getting COVID? Um, unfortunately, yes. We are seeing that a lot of the people who are going into the ICU, for example, you know, a year ago, it was people in their 70s and 80s. And this time around, it's people in their 30s and 40s. Um, so, um, you know, as I've been watching the headlines and, and the public health alerts coming out of places like Mississippi and Louisiana, um, they are noting that there are kids that are ending up in ICUs. And so it's important for us, you know, there's been sort of this, um, I think, misperception um, that this is not a virus that harms kids. And that's a lot of it because our focus was so heavy on our elderly population mm-hmm. who was, you know, more at risk for hospitalization and death. Um, but it's important to remember that, you know, kids are vulnerable to this too. Um, and they're our most vulnerable population right now because virtually none of them are vaccinated under the age of 12. Um, so, you know, that's of course scary as I know we're all getting ready for school to resume um, in just a couple weeks. Um, and, you know, what is that going to mean, especially with some states saying um, that masks are required and some say masks are optional and some that are really recalcitrant and just don't want any masks at all. Um, you know, what does that mean and how do we, how do we proceed? Mm. Yeah, that's in fact, before you hopped on, that's exactly what Mitch and I were talking about. Um, my daughter's three, they're going, they've done all outdoor field trips with her little school. She's in a small school, they're 12 kids. Anyway, they're going to a museum today. And so I masked her up and we, you know, we've learned how to fix our hair so that she can put her mask on by herself because, you know, you just don't have the finger dexterity to do that and anyway but she's going to be the only one in her group in a mask and mm-hmm. you start to and i'm going to be sending my kids back oklahoma it's not masking um yeah that's been an interesting time yeah that's it's been really a, tricky. it's an interesting trend dr schmicky and uh, i've been traveling a little bit last week i was in washington dc and here in oklahoma as autumn just alluded to nobody's wearing a mask i mean i'll wear mm-hmm. a mask inside a post office grocery store um, I'm the only one. Went to the DMV yesterday. Yeah, I'm the only one wearing a mask, and they're looking mm-hmm. at me like I'm crazy. But in Washington, D.C., everybody was wearing a mask, and private companies, restaurants, office places, it was mandatory that you, you wore a mask. And there's just, it's really interesting to see regionally how people are handling this and taking it seriously or not. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the great tragedies of this is that a public health emergency that affects every human the same way or, you know, same possible outcomes, um, you know, it's going to vary how bad it is based on what the local policies and regulations were. Um, And really, if it's going to affect humans universally, it really should be something that we protect ourselves against universally, too. Mm 
Do you think we're heading back to uh, possible mask mandates in some areas and even, you know, God forbid it gets worse, but potential shutdowns? I really don't want another shutdown, both personally, professionally, all of it. Um, But I think the way that we avoid that is by using other tools um, that are not quite so disruptive. Things like wearing a mask, um, social distancing, good air ventilation, if we can make that happen. Um, Those things, you know, it's like preparing for a hurricane. We don't normally clear out the shelves of of butter and milk and and bread um, every week. We only do that when hurricanes are coming. and I think this is like that too. We need to be flexible to the changing conditions. So when case rates are low, maybe you don't need to wear a mask all that much. But right now, you know, Missouri next door to me is on fire with COVID-19. Arkansas is very much the same way. And the panhandle of Oklahoma, I believe, is, is mm-hmm. or not a panhandle, sorry, a different part of Oklahoma is there too. And so the Ozark part of it. And so we really have to be careful. Um, we can't just assume that case rates are low. And so we don't have to do any of these things anymore. Um, but really it's a multi-layer strategy. So early on in the vaccine push, you and I had a conversation um, over the telephone about trying to convince people who were uh, um, suspect of the vaccine, how to convince them to go ahead and get it because it's safe and it's effective. Here we are months later, we now have a variant that is spreading in these pockets like wildfire. What are you hearing on the ground now of why people are not getting the vaccine? And let me preface this by saying I read a a column this morning and was watching the news this morning, and Fox News did a big push across all of their shows yesterday trying to convince their viewers to get vaccinated and not making this political at all. But everybody seems to get this now, that this is extremely serious and people need to get a vaccine in the arm. So are you hearing other reasons now why people aren't getting vaccinated? Yeah. Um, so, I'll, you know, I do a lot of work with health equity. Um, and so the big people that I'm concerned about are um, essential workers, people of reduced socioeconomic status, um, black and brown populations that have poor health outcomes just because of, you know, the way that systemic racism happens in the healthcare industry in general. And, you know, so for a lot of folks, I think it's hard when you're middle class to understand that for people that live paycheck to paycheck, they cannot afford to take time off to go get this vaccine because if they don't work, their kids don't eat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, when you put it in that context, you know, a lot of people that are middle class are like, I can go to CVS, I can go to Walgreens, why can't they? Um, I think they need to understand what the realities are for people. And so I think there's more work we can do to bring vaccines to those folks. Um, But, you know, on the hesitancy side of things, um, you know, I do hear a lot of distrust generally in the government. Um, I've had somebody tell me, I do not want to get the vaccine because it is so political. And I would just remind people that you do not consult your politicians when it's time to discuss a diabetes or heart medication. Um, and so there's no reason to be discussing this with your politician. You should be talking to your physician mm-hmm. um, about medical decisions. And so I think that, um, and besides which, would you risk losing your life to stick it to whoever, you know? And so I, I just don't, that's that's such a disheartening argument to me. Um, but, you know, I've run across other things too. Um, and so uh, there's especially a lot of concern about vaccinating kids. People have said, I'll get it, but I'm definitely not getting it. My own kids, um, and so that's um, that's hard for me. 
we were on vacation for both doses for my oldest son, but we made it a priority. He went on his 12th birthday um, to get his first dose, and then we followed that up um, while we were on vacation. So, so as a scientist and medical expert, um, what advice would you have for our listeners that have family members and have friends, coworkers who have not gotten vaccinated yet? How can we convince them that this is how we're going to beat this thing? Man, that's a multi-million dollar question, and I, I wish we had the best answer to approach all audiences. But I will say that, um, you know, next to a physician, um, family and friends are the most trusted sources of information um, for people that are on the fence. Um, and so it's important to continue to have those conversations. I think it's important to approach this with an abundance of empathy. Um, we've reached a point now where the people that are left to be convinced aren't the sort that may be convinced with facts. Um, they are the sort that are going to maybe be pulled by an emotional argument. Um, and so, you know, talk about how important they are to you um, and, you know, that you want them to be here for Christmas. You want them to be here for so-and-so's wedding or you want them to be here when your kids are born. Um, and so it's important to remember that what the stakes really are here. Um, the people who are who are dying at this point are the unvaccinated. And that's scary when we talk about the fact that kids are unvaccinated, but there's a lot, you know, if you're eligible for this vaccine, it's free, um, it's safe, it's effective. And we know that hospitalization is expensive, scary, and can lead to really horrible outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if we're going to choose our way out of this pandemic, I would much rather choose the safer path. Absolutely. We are continuing to hear, you know, I think we've talked about sort of the general population and the public. Let's circle back sort of as we close to talk about how scientists and medical personnel are handling this because they're fatigued, they're tired. Mm -hmm. They've, I, I just can't imagine, we're, you know, you're preaching this message and then having to take care of the people who won't listen to you. Yeah, we're talking to a hospital personnel here in Norman uh, over the weekend and they were saying that the hospital is down about 20% in their personnel just because of fatigue and you know, just people, they're done, they were done with it. And now all of a sudden ERs and ICUs are starting to fill back up and they're shorthanded. So I just can't imagine the frustration uh, that scientists and medical personnel are having. So how, how are you doing? <laughs> um, it does feel a bit like shouting into the void most of the time. Um, in fact, I had a friend who invited me to be in a town hall discussion and she says, hey, you want to go shout at Georgia? And I was like, <laughs> let's go shout. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, I just thought that was interesting that that's how she recruited me, because honestly, it does feel like we're all shouting into the void so much of the time. Um, but at the same time, it's important to keep having that message. I recently went on a big vacation. We were gone for three weeks and I still collected data during that time, but I so needed that break from the data um, and or, or just, you know, talking about death um, or talking about hospitalizations and talking about my worries. I will say, you know, my goodness, my heart goes out to all these healthcare workers that are going through this again. Um, and, you know, we thought for sure that with the vaccines, sure, we expected some bumps along the road, um, but we didn't expect something like this. And um, I think that, you know, we are seeing a lot of um, people leaving, uh, not just the healthcare industry, but also the public health workforce. When I joined public health, um, they were recruiting because all the baby boomers were getting ready to retire, and they knew there were going to be staffing shortages. And we're seeing people leave public health 
left and right um, because of the pandemic and the misinformation that's gone around with it. So um, yeah, it's tough and there's gonna have to be a real reckoning and recovery, not just economic, not just um, you know lives and, and, and that sort of thing, but we're also gonna have to think about how we support certain industries um, to protect us going forward into the future. Well, for me personally, and from our organization at Good Faith Media, we just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to yourself and to all the scientists and medical personnel out there who have really been on the front lines. I mean, literally been on the front lines of this, combating this for over a year and a half now. I mean, it's just been, I've never been through anything like this in my entire life. And a lot of people say the same thing who've lived a lot longer than I have. And uh, I just can't, all of you have been working so hard and have made so many sacrifices. And all we're asking people to do is to get the vaccine. That is the best thing that they could do to say thank you for all the hard work that uh, scientists and, and medical personnel have done. Well, Dr. Schmitke, thank you once again for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Um, I would like to say that this may be the last time we hear from you in a while, but I have a feeling that uh, we, we may have to have you on in, in a couple of months or so uh, talking about well, this, hopefully. We'll definitely have you, have you back when they release the vaccine for our kiddos, so you can help us yeah. convince all of our listeners to vaccinate their kids. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, for and, sure. And then when we have the end of this uh this pandemic we're going to pop champagne and celebrate yes. <laughs> so uh, well, dr schmicky thank you so much congratulations again on your new position at saint mary and uh, we wish you the best and if you had one final word to give everybody what would that be get vaccinated <laughs> and wear your masks Love it. Uh, what is it they say jesus and germs are everywhere um so <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, listeners, thank you so much uh, to Dr. Schmicky and the knowledge that she has given us and passed along to us. Uh, stay tuned. Autumn and I sat down with Sky Perryman, and uh, she is the new president and CEO of Dem or Democracy Forward, and uh, had a delightful conversation with her. So stay tuned. You passed her out of your passions and your personality. You're going to get dirty doing ministry. That is if you're doing it and doing it well. And then Astrid every week was subject to change by the Holy Spirit's direction. <laughs> Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the Black church for the whole church giving people a safe space to try and even fail has also helped to enlarge our capacity. I have had to decide what are my priorities in my ministry. I have really struggled with the CEO administrative part of what it means to lead this church. I said, I'm going to preach to you about Jesus. He said, Put that megaphone down and talk to us. Starting in January, we'll deliver a new episode each week featuring a prominent Black pastoral leader. Get rich insights and transparency on how spiritual gifts interact with unique settings for ministry. Part of the pain I carry in ministry is to have misinterpreted some relationships with younger preachers that I have had and some peers 
that turned out to be utilitarian and I missed it. And I was disappointed in myself for missing it. When I became pastor, I was terrified because I did not have a vision for the church. I just didn't. My loving deacon who I just adored called me that evening and said, Pastor, I've never been so embarrassed of you and for you. Hearing someone say, I never thought of it that way, that makes my day. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie. Join me and my colleague, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goldley, for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, a new weekly podcast from Lot Carey. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, Sky Perryman. Sky is a lawyer, advocate, and leader with a track record of taking on and winning critical fights that advance democratic values, stop abuses of power, and improve the well-being of people and communities. She was named president and CEO of Democracy Forward Foundation in June of 2021, returning to the organization where she was on the founding litigation team. She most recently served as the chief legal officer and general counsel of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where she oversaw its board portfolio of legal policy and public affairs work and led a number of groundbreaking initiatives that enhanced access and equality in healthcare. Sky grew up in Texas, the Lone Star State, and is a proud product of its public schools. She holds a Juris Doctorate with honors from Georgetown University Law Center and a Bachelor's of Arts Magna Cum Laude from Baylor University, where she is a member of the Board of Advocates for the College of Arts and Sciences. She's received numerous accolades and has been covered in outlets such as the New York Times, National Public Radio, NBC News, The Washington Post, The Houston Chronicle, most impressive, Teen Vogue, and of course now, Good Faith Media. In full disclosure, Sky is also a strategic advisory board for us here at Good Faith Media, and she has helped with numerous stories. Sky Perryman, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Hi, thanks for having me on. Good to uh, see you both virtually. <laughs> it is so good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, and congrats on your new position uh, with democracy hanging in the balance. Um, and that's not hyperbolic at this point. We've been sort of living <laughs> this reality for a bit. Tell us a little bit about the history and mission of Democracy Forward. Sure. Well, Democracy Forward began in the aftermath of the 2016 election uh, when it was very clear that the number and um, extremity of unlawful and harmful policies that we were going to see at the federal level required additional bandwidth from the legal and policy community. And so many of us lawyers left our jobs. I left my corporate legal job. We had folks leave government posts as well as, um, you know, great other organizations to start the organization and to bring a series of cases against the federal administration that were really essential to protecting the well-being of families and communities. You might have thought that the work of Democracy Forward was over at the end of the prior administration, but what we've seen, and of course January 6th, was just a real um, a real illustration of this, but we saw it even before, is that throughout the country, in state houses and communities and courtrooms um, across the country, there are threats to democracy every day. And the work to um, empower communities and individuals to build the society uh, that is just and equitable for all uh, continues. And so we are continuing our work at Democracy Forward. 
You know, Sky, you mentioned January 6th, and we all watched in horror as insurrectionists stormed the United States Capitol on that day under the encouragement of the former president, Donald J. Trump. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about that event and what led up to that event, um, a lot of people listen to our words and think that we might be you know, overstating the, uh, the situation a little bit. But the reality is the, pres- the former president, his supporters, they keep spreading this big lie that the election was stolen from him. And through the Trump administration for those four years and now the continuation of spreading that lie and what's going on across the country, Scott, how close was the United States to seeing democracy crumble? Well, I'll just say, you know, democracy is something we cannot take for granted. And uh, the threats to democracy were very visible on January 6th, but they started much earlier when you have um, people in power who do not believe that they should be held accountable to the laws, to the Constitution, to the values of our country, to science, to facts, to evidence. And so we saw a very concerning trend uh, for many, um, you know, for, for years and months leading up to January 6th. And of course, that is such a culmination event. But even today, what we see in state houses throughout the country is voter suppression legislation passing in, in record numbers, um, attempts to keep people from being able to vote, uh, which is a fundamental precept of democracy. And even beyond that, um, attempts to exclude people from uh, communities, to exclude people from being able to pursue their um, their lives and their dreams. We see that throughout the country in, uh, from you know many concerning state legislatures and other things. And so I would say that um, you know democracy is under threat. Um, it has been, it continues to be, and it's incredibly important that we all do our part to um, to help protect, our country and uh, our country's values of democracy and social progress. Very good. I agree. Lots going on in the state of Texas right now. Um, I mean, there's uh, an, an attempt to vote or to su- pass voter suppression laws. Democrats in the state have left the state in objection to that. They're hiding out in Washington, D.C. We heard even today that I think four of them now have uh, have contracted COVID. Uh, with all the drama associated with the story itself, tell us, tell our listeners what's actually going on with uh, the legislature down in the state of Texas. Well, thanks for that question. Um, you know, Democracy Forward, we were we were founded to check abuses of power. We believe that when people are in government, they have a responsibility to the people because in a democratic society, uh, we derive, the government derives its power from the people. And what we've seen in Texas is incredibly concerning, but it's concerning for reasons that um, you might not see on, um, you know, you, you might not, it's concerning for more than just the reasons that you might see in a headline. Um, at the end of the last legislative session in May, um, when the legislature sought to pass, or the governor sought to pass a variety of, I think, um, his uh, favored bills, including a voter suppression um, legislation, those those bills failed. And um, that's a democratic process. And uh, the governor announced that because the bills that he preferred failed, that he was going to defund the entire legislative branch of government in Texas. So I and lost, so- I'm going to take all my marbles and leave. 
and, and, and seek to eliminate one of the three branches of government in Texas. And um, so he said it, and some folks didn't think he was going to do it, but then he did. And so in June, Governor Abbott in Texas vetoed the Texas legislature's funding. And what that means is that because the legislature did not pass his preferred bills, as of September 1st of this year, legislative employees, people who work for members on both sides of the aisles, civil servants who work in nonpartisan offices, more than 2,000 uh, workers will lose their livelihood because the legislature has no funding. Uh, the governor said, well, you know, you can get your funding if you come back to a special session and you pass my bills, you have a job to do. That's not that's not how democracy works. Um, you can't threaten people, threaten to eliminate in a complete branch of government uh, if the government doesn't do its, its uh, your own bidding. And in Texas, the Texas Constitution is very protective of the separation of powers. And so on behalf of the Texas AFL-CIO and state workers, and alongside more than 60 lawmakers, we brought a case in the Texas Supreme Court that is pending there now, seeking to um, hold the governor's veto unconstitutional constitutional because it is. The Texas Constitution um, is more protective than even the federal constitution on a separation of powers guarantee. And we're really proud that we have a bipartisan coalition of former and current lawmakers who have spoken out against this action, including a former Republican Speaker of the House, Joe Strauss, a former Democratic Speaker of the House in Texas, Pete Laney, and a former Republican Lieutenant Governor, uh, Bill Ratliff, have all filed, you know, have filed a brief speaking out against this unconstitutional action. So that, that case is in the courts. We're proud to be representing the, the workers um, in Texas and the Texas AFL-CIO. And uh, we do hope that democracy and that the Texas Constitution prevails. So, Sky, I mean, the Texas Democrats are in Washington advocating for a national bill. Uh, I know we're really close. How, how important is it that we walk this over the finish line and get a national voter rights bill passed? I think it's important that everybody do uh, what they can do. Uh, the state legislatures need to be passing uh, voter enhancement bills, not voter suppression bills. Uh, federal government needs to be supporting um, voter rights, not voter suppression. And of course, citizens like ourselves need to be informed. We need to be outspoken and we need to um, make our voices heard. That is where the government derives its power is from the people and attempts to subvert that, whether that's through vetoing co-equal branches of government like, like Governor Abbott did in Texas or seeking to advance voter suppression policies um, are really troubling. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for educating because I, I just learned a lot. Appreciate that. You know, we've got a lot of stop gaps uh, in our system that um, made certain that uh, smaller communities, uh, minorities in this, uh, this country were not only, uh, not only were they able to be heard, but also to be direct participants in the democratic process. And when I say minorities, I'm not necessarily speaking of people of color or sexual orientation. I'm talking about populations. And so we think about the structure of the Electoral College, for example, and the influence that Southern states had uh, on the founding of the country. Even today, with the filibuster uh, in the Senate, that you know you have to almost have a supermajority to pass anything of significance uh, before you know you can it's signed into law. Do you think these these measures that we have 
are still germane in the democratic process, or is it something that we should examine to open up what would truly be a majority gets to dictate what takes place in this country? But at the same time, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's important for minority groups to have a say and not be run over by the majority of the people in this country either. So that's a hot potato, I know, and and a really complex question. Well, look, I think that everything, you know, democracy is a not a static um, concept or a static thing. It's something that grows and that expands and that allows for, at its best, the the horizons of human possibility. It allows people to pursue its happiness. And so, and so, really, I mean, nothing. We should always be examining our institutions, our laws, and everything in order to make sure that they're as just and as equitable as freedom enhancing as possible. I mean, this was a country that, while it was built on some lofty ideals from day one, uh, there were deep, deep um, fundamental human rights abuses and ways in which the country did not live up to the promise um, and still does not live up to the promise for so many people in our society. And so I think that um, the beauty, the the art of democracy is to um, to, to examine and to um, try to become more perfect, to be better than ourselves. And that has been the, pro- the project of American democracy. I think what is so concerning right now is that's the project we need to be working working on, it is far from over. There there are manifest structural injustices before you ever started looking at voter suppression legislation or this last batch of issues. There have been tons of um, really problematic policies and structural um, inequities in our society. And now on top of all of that work that has remained and needs to be done, you're now facing real threats to our fundamental way of operating um, in our imperfect, but hopefully becoming more perfect union. And so I think that's really where so many of us are concerned. Over 100 uh, political science of the nation's leading political scientists have said that democracy is in peril. You, you hear about it, you know, on the news cycles. And I think that that's really a, a true nature of the concern is just how um, uh, even the things that I think most people would agree on are now being um, completely uh, threatened. Well, I guess we had a good run at it uh, over 200 years. (laughs) Uh, No, I've got faith in the people. I've got faith in the system. Uh, If it didn't break, uh, boy, it bent bent as much as you could bend it uh, the last four years, but it didn't break. And so hopefully there's, there's good news on the horizon. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's shift gears just a little bit to a topic that we know is dear to your heart, and that's women's health. Uh, what do people of good faith need to know about the latest issues regarding women's health? It's been a bit since we talked to China on the podcast, so catch us up. Yeah, so, well, wow. I mean, um, you know, women's health, and really when we talk about women's health, we need to think about it in a broad sense, right? You're talking about people who identify as women, some people who do not, but that nevertheless require health care that women's health professionals offer. Um, people in the LGBTQ community is one example. Um, and um, so we need to talk, think about it in the broad sense, from adolescence to, um, to um, in the postmenopausal years. And um, there are just a broad variety of issues. And this is another 
example where the stakes really could not be higher. We have extreme laws and legislatures throughout the country that are prioritizing politics over science and well-being of people, whether that is seeking to penalize, to criminally penalize physicians for providing um, care and treatment to LGBTQ people, um, or whether it is um, criminally penalizing physicians or other healthcare providers or others who seek to um, provide comprehensive reproductive health care to, to, to women. There are um, numerous uh, threats to even basic things such as contraceptive access to cancer screenings. There is a case right now in um, federal court in Texas where there is an attempt to undermine provisions of the Affordable Care Act that allows for copay-free cancer screenings, uh, contraception, uh, and other preventive care that's essential. And then, of course, the country has a maternal mortality crisis. Mm -hmm. And it is a crisis that um, is not equally distributed uh, because of historical inequities and current and structural racism in medicine. We know that um, black women and indigenous women are far more likely to experience um, death or severe um, maternal morbidity during their pregnancies or after their pregnancies than white women. And there are gaps in coverage, right? I mean, not everyone can access healthcare. So that is the tip of the iceberg for all of the issues in women's health. And of course, we've seen with COVID, there have been a lot of concerns around um, making sure that people understand that the vaccine that vaccine is safe, um, but um, those are those are some issues. And the state legislatures, this has been a really detrimental uh, time for women's health, given what so many states are passing um, in their legislatures. You know, Scott, one of our big uh, concerns here at Good Faith Media has been uh, advocacy for women's health and making certain women's health is, is paramount in this country. But our big concern is that it seems as though when policy uh, is constructed, when these issues are addressed, how much influence the patriarchal system plays in determining women's health. Mm-hmm. It seems like a, a, an unequal balance that that you, you've got all of these guys in a room making decisions on women's health. What can we do to make certain and empower women's voices that they can be heard and that they can become the paramount example and constructor of women's health policies? Yeah, I mean, we've got to do a lot. And I think um, there are things that we as people who are not lawmakers can do, right? We can work to amplify the voices of women, of communities, of healthcare professionals um, who are taking care of women or who are taking care of people who require um, OBGYN and other care, even if they don't identify as women. Uh, We see, um, you know, again, I mean, you know, writing, um, really making sure that people's stories are told. You've done a great job, I think, on Good Faith Media of elevating the voices of healthcare professionals, of people who have sought healthcare, of people of faith who have, you know, struggled with their own um, paths um, around uh, lots of women's health issues. And I think we have to, you know, not shy away from um, telling these stories, from being real and authentic, and um, from really um, elevating the voices, what we know is that when healthcare is restricted, including women's healthcare, that um, it affects marginalized communities more than it affects 
people who have means, that it affects folks that have been historically marginalized, communities of color, more than it does white people. And so we have to see this as a justice issue and as an equity issue and not as a political issue. It's a science issue. It's a justice issue. It's an equity issue. But it shouldn't be a polarizing political issue when you're talking about people's ability to live their lives um, and to enhance their well-being. Love that. Now, another topic that is dear and close to your heart is LGBTQ inclusion and equality. You've been working with a group of students at Baylor University to acquire a charter for a student group, Gamma Alpha Epsilon, a group of LGBTQ students and advocates. Sky, what can people of good faith do to advocate for the full inclusion and equality for LGBTQ people in the church and society at large? Look, I think the answer is right there in the good book, right? It's love. It's um, we have to, we can't stigmatize people. Uh, we need to think about what it would be to walk in another's shoes. We need proximity to folks that live like us, the folks that live differently than us, people who have different um, born characteristics than we do, um, all of those things uh, to really um, be able to um fully advocate for um, a, a earth that is um, just, that is loving, and particularly in our religious institutions, it is really uh, so troubling, right? When you see religious institutions or, or, or institutions that identify as faith-based institutions uh, that, that- I love that distinction. Thank you. That was good. I'm going to use that. That was really yeah, good. That aren't, that aren't, that aren't um, that aren't engaging in full inclusive um, uh, policies. We know um, in my faith tradition, which is the Christian tradition, there's a radical equality of people that is, um, you see it throughout um, all the teachings of Christ. And so I really just, I think that um, we have to walk the walk, right? And um, it's not just about talking the talk, but it's about walking the walk. And I'm so proud of so many uh, young advocates at Baylor University and in other um, institutions throughout the country that are, um, doing the work of getting their education, but also advocating for themselves and for their peers and their friends and their colleagues' um, rights. Love that. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your important work at Democracy Forward and um, our conversation here today, what is your more to tell? I just, you know, I think we can never give up and we can never lose hope. And there is always good work to do. And uh, if we are blessed enough and um, fortunate enough to have some of that work come to us and get piled on our plates, you got to just never give up, um, never shy away from a, a worthy fight. And I think that um, you can find hope, you can make an impact, you can make some friends, and you can do the work um, that we desperately need in the world. I'm so grateful that, that you all at Good Faith Media um, are doing that work and using the platform that you have. And I hope that the work that we're able to do at Democracy Forward um, will be meaningful and impactful for people and communities. Love that answer. Sky Perryman, President and CEO of Democracy Forward. Thank you for being on Good Faith Weekly. It was a joy and a delight to have you as a guest.
Thank you. If you want to know more about Democracy Forward, you can visit their website at democracyforward.org. And we suggest that as soon as you hit stop on this podcast, that you go right there and learn more about how you can be involved to save this democracy of ours, because it's the only one we got. To our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. As always, we appreciate each and every one of you. And until Autumn and I come back next week, keep living good faith.